just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, January 1st, 2024, and we'd like to welcome you to Season 4 of Fish of the Week. We're going to be continuing our week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Levick with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Euro, and I feel very lucky, very blessed to be looking back for a third time on a third season of Fish of the Week. And even though, as Katrina mentioned, there's tons of stuff to cover, the fact that we've made it this far, I am just very thankful. So we'll be spending today looking back at some of the highlights from 2023's Fish of the Week slate and then talking a little bit about what we've got looking forward. To recap our hopes and goals with this podcast, really continue to be highlighting just all the amazing variety of America's fishes and elevating all the different voices of people who love and depend on through conversations. So where we can, we really like to find opportunities to highlight all the ways that fish are relevant to our daily lives. And we also try to see fish in everything. So one fun example of that from this past year was all of that hubbub about Meghan and Harry and the King Charles coronation. We knew about a famous lamprey coronation pie and its relatively recent ties to the Great Lakes from a discussion with some sea lamprey folks in season two. And we're really curious to go to England, hear from some folks there. So let's play a clip from that episode. (laughs) Greetings and felicitations from the ancient and noble cathedral city and port of Gloucester, the fortifying gateway to South Wales and the West. I have been commanded by the right worshipful, the mayor of Gloucester, to greet you all and welcome you all to this radio show. We're going to tell you all about our world-famous lamprey pies, which will be presented to His Britannic Majesty, King Charles III. Yeah, that puts our <laughs> intro to shame. <laughs> I love that one. And that was our fourth Lamprey episode. And despite some serious time zone challenges, we were able to get those two lovely British guests to talk with us. I, I love those guys. They, they, they were they were yeah. fun. One thing about the pie yeah. that stood out to me when I was doing the research for that, when I'd read about it before, I read, you know, it's a big pie. And I thought that just meant a large radius, a large circumference, but it's just super intricate. You know, they're building them like mm-hmm. cathedrals and everything. So it was amazing to see those. Unfortunately, this year, it sounds like they didn't actually, the, the king didn't eat Use any. real lamprey. It's the oh, society yeah. that we're, and they didn't, even, yeah, they didn't bring, <laughs> the society we're living, the king isn't even eating the lamprey pie anymore. I don't know how things are going, but it was a good episode. And that was, I mean, I really like doing lamprey episodes. They're so cool. They've kind of got a bad reputation just due to them being invasive in the Great Lakes, but they're just a fascinating group of fishes, and I I love them. But it's too many, considering (laughs) that there's other jawless fishes out there to do. You know, that's too many lampreys, but I'm glad we got to do that one. There's never too many lampreys. Another primitive fish we covered was the hagfish, which are known mostly, I think, for the people that know them at all, is for their extreme slime. And we had two super interesting guests. We had Dr. Fudge and Dr. Grubbs. They also had fun names, but let's play a clip from that episode. It's very sort of stringy slime that you really have difficulty getting off of your hands. It just sticks to everything. It's horribly disgusting and nasty. (laughs) And if you have the other genus, which is Eptotretus, there's two species of Eptotretus we get. Those, it's more of a gooey slime Mm. rather than a stringy slime. 
The thing that I thought was really, I, I love episodes when we're able to bring on people from sort of adjacent fields of expertise, like mm-hmm. biologists, managers, that's great, but we hear a lot from them. So getting Dr. Fudge on, who's a material scientist, yeah. and learning about, because it's amazing the volume of slime that is produced by these little fish and how he's studying like the cellular structures that are able to produce these threads and that unravel and congeal this water into something. That, that's what I thought was the most fascinating about it. I, I would agree with that. He was super cool. And just that kind of all those different applications of the slime. Like you think about this fish, it's a little bit gross looking. It makes slime, but that biomaterials facet of it, I thought was Super fascinating. And it was cool, too. You have been closing uh, most of the shows now by asking, what value does this fish have? Why should we care about this fish? And that's a good question, because there's lots of ones out there where it's hard to see it. But this is a fish that a lot of people aren't familiar with. A lot of people don't see. Yet, you know, people do eat it. People do use their skin to make wallets and like a leathery type material. So this is one of those kind of lesser appreciated fishes that actually does have a very clear practical use. Yeah, and I think raising awareness so they don't slip under the radar in terms of conservation. Okay, since this is a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service podcast, we try to cover fish found in our refuges and monuments as much as we can. And one of my favorite episodes took us to the Marianas Trench National Marine Monument. So let's see what it was like for one of our guests to go down to a depth that very few people on the planet will ever go. And it's very cramped. It's not a particularly nice experience. You get used to it. It's kind of cool, but it's basically two people in a titanium ball which is not much bigger than two people we just sat the sub down on the bottom and sat and ate a bag of Doritos I just mm-hmm. took, took a moment just you know just sat down and thought like like, 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 like two old guys on a park bench you know I just <laughs> sit there and then you realise you were seven miles surreal. underneath the ship I find myself laughing at all the same parts again which I'm going to try not to do <laughs> Uh, I loved our our guests on this one. We had deep sea scientist Alan Jameson and we had a park ranger, Jihan Yunus from Saipan. And they really had just real complimentary perspectives. And also we had aired this episode right around the time when that Titan submersible went missing. I'd been following that and Alan's description of going down so deep really just kind of blew my mind. And in addition, the fish is incredible, the snailfish. Yeah, it's really cool how they've adapted to be able to live down there. I loved when he was talking about uh, the cellular structures and how they have got this unique cell wall that allows them to deal with that kind of pressure. We're having to put, I don't know how many millions of dollars into allowing ourselves to get down there. And these fish have just over time developed their own means of doing it. Yep. Super cool. Speaking of strange eats in strange places like Doritos in the deepest depths of the sea, we've got a fun clip from our OPA episode. This is a Skittles bit. (laughs) <laughs> I have a friend that's been doing some diet studies on OPA and he's found everything in there, right? So there's like squid and fish. And then he's found like, he found a lime wedge and half of an <laughs> onion. <laughs> yeah, so they, they're generalists, right? So they seem to be pretty opportunistic. enjoying life, yeah. Yeah. I think there might be a chef on the boat just pulling <laughs> pranks on you guys. I still think that. And, and he got, he went on to say <laughs> they later pranked someone by putting a pack of Skittles in there. Nick that was one, our, our first bona fide gill nerd too. So that was really fun to hear from someone with such a interest in gill specifically. Yeah, no, that was a cool one. That that's, he wrote some papers that I really enjoyed reading and so getting him on that, that was a fantastic guest. We want to give a shout out to our volunteer, Daniel Kemp. He wrote a great story about 
the swarmest fish in the cold blue sea. So you can get a little bit of additional detail there. And that's at fws.gov. So thanks, Daniel. Check that out. Yep. Good job, Daniel. So my final strange each that I really liked our Mexican Tetra conversation. We don't have a clip from that, but learning how bats eat moths and then their sparkly guano plops down in cave water and Tetras eat that. I thought that was fascinating. Everything's connected. That was another one where we got to kind of reach across the border and do a trans-North American, U.S.-Mexico one. That was, a, that was a fun one. We've done a few episodes, including two this past year, where the fish is either all one sex or they change sex. We really loved our guest, Ingo, who helped us learn about the all-female Amazon molly. That fish uses the males of other species to reproduce. We found ourselves asking, like, what's in it for the males? And as the resident female on the show, I asked Guy and Ingo to put themselves in an Amazon molly situation. So let's play that clip. If you were a male fish... Would you rather be a species who mates with an Amazon molly or a deep sea <laughs> angler fish and why? <laughs> That's an interesting question. So deep sea angler fishes have the problem, most of them never find a female. So they divergence basically <laughs> and they never mate. But when they mate, they're really successful and they attach themselves to the female. And so I don't want to well, you guys figure out what kind of relationship you have with your partners, but <laughs> I'll go with anglerfish. Okay. How about you, Guy? I would have to, you know, I'm not thinking about this as a population. I'm thinking about this as just me. I wouldn't want to just become a little pair of fishy gametes attached to a woman. I'd want to be able to go around and, you know, if I'm a male, be mating with my own species, also mating with the Amazon mollies, just getting it on all that I can. So I would definitely be the male of a sailfin molly. You going to change your opinion at all? No. Not at all. <laughs> I, uh, I think that if I were a male Molly, I, I think I could find a way to mate with both. I think I, I could do it. <laughs> I saw some, speaking of male sailfin mollies, I was out working on Ash Meadows Refuge, getting some videography of these Amargosa pupfish. And <laughs> unfortunately, no, there's these invasive species that have been put in the springs, non-native species, including your red swamp crayfish, some other blue crayfish, Every once in a while, you see goldfish, but just mosquito fish, ton, tons of mollies, though, tons of these sailfin mollies. And, oh. uh, but the males are gorgeous. So, mm-hmm. on you the one hand, fin, right? yeah, I, I hated fin. seeing them in there, but they had this bright yellow chest, the shimmery blue on the tips of the caudal fin. Uh, so seeing them in there with, the, and of course, the pupfish are gorgeous as, as well. But, uh, it was a shame to see them in there, but also fun to watch them. How'd they get in there? Uh, presumably an aquarium mm-hmm. release. They got a sign up by the boardwalk saying, telling people, don't, don't release do your pet. Yeah. But uh, I don't know if that was in mm-hmm. response or if someone saw that and still went out and did it. But Dang. Okay. Yeah. So let's contrast that drab but interesting all-female species with a big honking male humphead wrasse. Those guys go from indeterminate sex to female to male over the course of their life. And really, this was, I, I like guys' intro here. And this week we're talking about a fish that shouldn't have a little man complex and also probably shouldn't be invading Russia in the wintertime anytime soon. It's the humphead wrasse. Yeah. I thought that was awesome. I like that too. I didn't know that they were coming out with that Joaquin Phoenix movie. Otherwise, maybe I would have done a reference to that. I do kind of like the joke of, you know, if you know it's the Napoleon wrasse, you get the intro. Otherwise... You can, I mean, we introduce it later, but that was kind of the joke there. Yeah. yeah. Um, that, was, that was a fun yeah, one. The, that was fun. The Pacific Remote Islands Marine National Monument is just absolutely huge. 
That one's jointly managed by NOAA and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And our guest there was Amanda Pollack from U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And she was awesome. She really helped us dig in all the details about this huge coral reef fish. And we aired that episode during our National Wildlife Refuge Week, which we thought was fitting since there was, you know, seven refuges encompassed there. But really, really cool fish. Great guest on that one. What I think was cool about having Amanda on is it kind of shows some of the diversity of people that fish and wildlife have, because she's one of... Maybe the only or one of only a few marine biologists who work for the service. Normally, you know, you guys are dealing with inland waterways and freshwater fish. But of course, out there, you have all these intricate connections between the land and the sea. So you need someone who can deal with that. So having her on was great. Moving on to the longest lived vertebrate out there, the Greenland shark, which is also the largest Arctic fish. We knew this fish was old, reaching ridiculous age of like 500 years or something like that. But some of the other stats that our stats that our guests from Canada shared also just blew my mind. So let's play a clip from that. A ton of babies. Is that true? Yeah. In the same paper that estimated their age, they also estimated their age at maturity at about 150 years. Oh wow. my gosh. That's old. 150 yeah, years so takes, old before having... Wow. That's yeah, crazy. At least for the females. How long were the estimated gestation periods on that again? Like, it's in like the know, dozens like of years almost? 10 years yeah. or something, 10 or 12 years. I, yeah. was, I had no idea. That was crazy. That's a long, slow life up there in the cold Arctic waters. I wish on that one, and I, I liked our guest and he was a researcher, I wish we could have talked more about the hockerel. I know I'm mispronouncing that, but that mm -hmm. Icelandic fermented shark, I, I think that's really cool. And I wish we could have covered that more, but there's only so much time and you got to lean into people's expertise. What I thought was really cool about this one, I mean, we learn a lot of different ways that scientists can kind of age creatures and, mm -hmm. you know, plants and things like that. But with these guys, they age them with their eyes. And I thought it was really gross to learn how most Greenland sharks are being parasitized by copepods that actually attach to their corneas. So let's play a clip from that. It is satisfying to pluck one off of a Greenland shark's <laughs> eye. The sensation yeah. of the lot, like, you know, when you pull a grape off, there's like resistance and then that little like uh, release. It's yeah. a bit like that, um, but a lot squishier. And the shark's like, ah, yeah. that's gross. Speaking of parasites, there was this gem of information in the California killifish episode, which also had probably the most passionate fungalist fan we've ever met. Um, he also had a, a ton of great information about wetlands and wetland restoration, but let's play that clip as well. And what they do is they basically go and castrate the snail, oh. hang on to where its gonads are, used to be, and gets its energy from the snail to keep asexually reproducing more Whoa. of itself. <laughs> what do you think of that parasite that is in the fungalist life cycle guy? That was well, another one. I was just like, oof. It's interesting. So that's, I assume, a trematode type worm that he's talking about, although I'm not sure. But yeah, it's, it's a, I think that whole group of parasites have to have multiple host species throughout their life. And it, it is just a very interesting adaptation. And, you know, fr from a human perspective, we look at it, it's like, ah, that's kind of cheating. That's mean. But it's found a niche and it's found a way that works. And so I, I just think that's kind of cool. Yeah, it is cool. It makes me shudder, but it also brings back memories of that stickleback episode yeah. with the parasites that make them go to the surface. They kind of mind control them into behaving differently so a bird can get them and continue that cycle. There's another one that what it does is it burrows into the limbs of amphibians like frogs and cause them to grow all funny where they'll have like forked, like multiple feet coming out. Uh, oh. It's crazy looking stuff. 
And again, it's the idea that you're making this one host easy prey for birds, waiting birds that will then pick at them. And then that also is a distribution mechanism. That's why you want to get into the birds so they can go and they can, you know, poop them somewhere else. Kind of like a kind of like common carp. I know that was a. I don't think we had, do we have any clips from that? <laughs> one? We that, don't. We that don't. was a good. Ep- I like the common carp episode. I know there's some people. Uh, I did too. The, it's the bane of their existence, but uh, I, I think it's an interesting fish. I thought that was a good one because I mean a lot of the fish we cover have a really kind of robust history and story, and they're complex. And some fish are well liked by some and hated by others and that was one of those and yeah that was a that was a really good one i thought too i don't think there's any more complicated fish history out there than that of the common carp the dog of fish the dog of fish been with us yeah. the whole time so last year we celebrated the 50th anniversary of the endangered species act we covered a lot of quite beautiful and amazing threatened and endangered fishes and we're going to take a look back at a few of those starting with some candy for our ears with guest andrew fit from our White Sulphur Springs National Fish Hatchery. So let's play that clip. I think they look like a big red and orange green lollipop. You know, one of those big swirl <laughs> lollipops. They're stunning. You know, that's the main thing. I always say that it's very easy to convince folks to save these animals. I like his accent. I like his accent too. And I like that they're on a stamp. So go get that stamp. Yeah. A much larger fish on that list um, is the Atlantic sturgeon. And this was, I think, our fourth sturgeon episode, but we have a clip of that as well that we'd like to play. Oh, they're pretty rough. The skin feels like sandpaper. They can get big. The biggest I've ever seen alive was about eight feet and 200 pounds. The mouth is almost like a proboscis. They, they swim along and they stick that mouth out and just... Like a big yeah. old vacuum cleaner sucking up everything <laughs> in its way, looking for worms and That's snails so cool. and that. That's awesome. And that was that was Albert, Albert Spells. Yeah, he was. I loved his accent too, and he just had a really great way of describing stuff. Yeah, I really liked him going into the history of the sturgeon and telling about people having to ride them, about them being tied up to yep. the bridge and the conflict between the commercial people using horse traffic versus the commercial watermen. And also yep. his hypothesis about how if it weren't for sturgeon, we might be speaking Spanish on this podcast today. I thought that was a fun little hypothesis there. Yep. Go check that one out. So the native fish community of the Colorado River, it's very, very cool. Unfortunately, also very imperiled. And so far we've covered the humpback chub, the bony tail chub, razorback sucker, and the Colorado pike minnow all protected by the ESA due to being at risk. So let's play a clip from our Colorado Pike Minnow episode. This river evolved with moving sediment. That's how it forms new habitats. It forms islands. It digs new side channels. It's a fairly nutrient-poor river system. And so by moving sediment and entraining sediment, it also brings in things like woody debris, leaves, bugs, things like that, that add nutrients to the system. The native fish really evolved using sediment as their form of cover. Well, one thing about that fish, and we found it in the bony tail episode too, that's interesting, is the use of floodplain habitat marshes that are really important for these fish. We think about the Colorado River and the Green Rivers going through these big canyons and having these rapids, but that's not the habitat that they're always using, certainly not throughout their life cycle. And then you also have these different invasive species, these fathead minnows, these red shiners that can act as predators on these fish when they're in their most vulnerable stage. 
So I thought that was insightful because that's not something that I usually consider. What amazed me about those fishes that we mentioned is their potential to reach really big sizes and how they're all kind of an arms race against each other from a predator prey standpoint. They have some really neat adaptations, just really, really neat fish. And I also learned what a fiat multiplies from guy when we talked about the humpback chub. Yeah, we've we've done them all. I I think the the humpback chub meets that description the best, but they all kind of got that hump and that we still don't fully know what it's for. The Roanoke log perch is another fish on this list that turns out is really neat. Guy, what stands out most to you about that fish? Well, not necessarily about the Roanoke in particular, but the log perches as a group stand out. And Mm -hmm. it's because of a cool, well, it's, it's both morphological, but also behavioral traits that they have. They have this sort of stubby nose And they use that to go in and flip over rocks. And in doing so, they reveal prey items, little bugs are living on the bottom. Of course, they exist in the southeast where it's interesting, where, you know, Katrina just mentioned this arms race, where out west, where it's relatively new in terms of evolutionary history, we had glaciers and stuff. There's not all these fish that know how to get these bugs. So there's tons of bugs out there. In the southeast, fish have all these different ways to find food and the uh, log perches have this way of rooting around kind of like a pig to, to pick stuff up. And I firmly believe that they should be in a genus all their own and taken out of Persina. Mm. But uh, we'll wait for the geneticists to do that. They, they are monophyletic. Yeah. And I think the technical term for their nose is piggy snout. Let's play a clip Oinkers. from that episode. <laughs> Probably the most notable physical trait of all the log perches is that bulbous kind of conical piggy snout that they have, which they use that pointy snout just like a pig does to sort of root around <laughs> on the bottom in, in the substrate and flip over sticks and rocks and things like that to forage on the insects underneath. I didn't know the, the exact clips that we were using, so I should just <laughs> let Jamie do it. He did a Surprise! much more concise job. But we should also mention, you it's mentioned funny. the Joel Sartori stamps, Persina Rex, Roanoke Log Perch, also in that stamp set, so. Oh, nice. Yep. Do you have the stamps guy? I've used I some it. of them. I, I don't, I'm not a philatelist. I'm more of a numismatist, but uh, yeah. So maybe in the future. They, they are cool stamps. Maybe they'll get me into it. And that behavior that we just talked about is something that makes fish like log perch really important to another highly imperiled group of organisms. And those are the freshwater mussels. These are clearly not a fish, but look like a fish with their lures and are just really cool. So let's play a clip. And so in the case of the log perch, when the log perch is nudging rocks on the bottom of the river and he comes in contact with the snuff box, the snuff box will actually latch onto its snout. And once it latches down onto the snout of the log perch, it starts to pump in those larvae, also known as glochidia, and those will then attach to the gills of the log perch. They'll kind of become insisted on the gills, the fish will start to lay a coating down over those and they'll live there usually a few months. Not only do they require the nutrients that they draw from the fish's blood that's in their gills and stuff, but that's what they use in order to move and migrate. So when they're attached to these fish, the fish are, of course, moving up and downstream. And as they mature, they turn into a juvenile and they drop off more than likely they're not dropping off in the same muscle bed that their parents are in. So that does help with our genetic flow throughout those rivers. Those mussels are so cool how they make those lures too that look just like a fish or other, you know, they have other ways of attracting fish as well, but just really, really neat. Yeah, I had the fortune, I was snorkeling out in the Ozarks out in Arkansas earlier this year and I came 
Pawn, what? I'm not good at keying out muscles, but I'm guessing based on the lure is probably a lampsilis that I was, what I was doing was I was specifically looking for darters, doing a little bit of micro fishing. And I got fooled by this muscle into thinking that there was a darter there and it, it was, you know, oh. beating it around. It was pretty cool. But yeah, they have That's the ones, amazing. some that they send out into the flow, some that they get fish to come and bite them. Sometimes they grab the darters or the log perches. So it is cool how even within this group, it's kind of like the trematodes that we were talking about, where yeah. it's this really unique and kind of convoluted life history that they have these different ways of accomplishing the goal of getting your babies on a fish. I still don't understand how they can make a part of their body look like a fish. I just, evolution, baby, blows my mind. I know, it's just, it's crazy. Okay, so we love our endangered fishes, but also our underappreciated native fishes. So big shout out to the rough fish folks. We've had a lot of great guests from that group. Let's learn a little bit about the moon eye gold eye. And you see this flash of silver. Mm. And you're like, what is that? They mean like a portal just opened up to like, <laughs> you know, either a different galaxy where this fish exists or a different time where this exists. I mean, it's just this alien looking fish. I was surprised to learn about a connection between the moon eye and the endangered spectacle case muscle in that episode, too. So I guess the moon eye, they only host and unfortunately can't get past this this dam. So it's actually imperiling the muscles upstream of that even more. And that, that seems to be a common case. I, I was unaware of that particular example. But yeah, that's definitely something that you see a lot of. Um, I don't know that alien-like is how I would describe them. I like their passion for the fish, but they look like shad to me. They got those big, weird alien eyes, though. They're, they're very cool. They're very cool, but I, I feel like they could go unnoticed because people might confuse them for a Dorosoma threadfin or a gizzard shad. They do got yeah. that crazy tongue, though, the North American representative to the bony tongues. Okay, so hogsuckers are another really cool, maybe underappreciated native fish. Let's play a, a clip from that episode, too. The biggest thing that you'll notice about them is the head is large, it's square. It's the eyes are sort of protruding. It's got a black ring around the mouth. Some of my friends have started calling them goth suckers because <laughs> it looks like they're wearing black lipstick. Yeah, yeah that's a does. good one. That was a good one. That was, I learned a lot of colloquial names for them. Pugamoo was one that I had not heard before. Very, very cool fish. Definitely a, a fan favorite whenever we're out sampling. I still need to find a Roanoke hog sucker. Okay. I, I like the fishing story that our guest shared as well. Let's play that clip. This was a competition between us for like many years, like maybe okay. a decade where I caught a hog sucker and he hadn't caught one and Ooh. we traveled everywhere. I just, I still have, I remember the day when we were wading the Red Cedar River in Wisconsin and he caught this fish and it immediately was a big hog sucker. It would tell. It, it sort of splashed on the surface and, he had this panic in his voice, like, it's a hog sucker. <laughs> <laughs> I just love the way he said that. It was hilarious. Yeah, that was a good one. Probably my favorite quote. In addition to the fish themselves, we talk a lot about fisheries. And we've had some really interesting conversations this past year. And we covered with, like, Mark Kurlansky this past season and the decline of coastal fisheries and ways of life. Let's play a few, starting with a really interesting post-larva fishery for these really neat Sicidium gobies use their lips and fuse pelvic fins to climb up steep waterfalls on rocks when they're older. But yeah, let's play the clip about the fishery. And in fact, the name for these post larvae at least has its origins in indigenous name. Because if you look at the names across the Caribbean, in Puerto Rico, they're called seti. In mm -hmm. 
Cuba, they're called Teti. In Martinique, it's like Tree Tree. And so because of that really similar name, we imagine that the connection was from indigenous people who probably fished for them as well. Yeah, I know you really like that post-larval fishery. What are your thoughts? I do like the post-larval fishery, and I, I like fisheries in general. I, I suppose maybe we should define fishery. It's kind of the socio-ecological system that involves both fish and their ecosystem and the people utilizing those fish and catching them. And so well, I know over in Europe, sometimes fisheries are used interchangeably with hatcheries, but that is something different over here and how, how we talk about it. Uh, but I, I love talking about fisheries because while it's fun to talk about fish in isolation and these cool evol- evolutionary adaptations and stuff that they have, um, at, at the core of it all, it's, it's really fascinating to see how people interact with fish. And this one stands out to me because normally you think about going out and trying to make the big catch, catch that giant fish, that big tuna or that big musky, whether it's just to show off to your friends or to bring a lot of food home. This is the exact opposite, catching tons of little tiny fish. And so I think it's cool how you can utilize these species at different stages in in their life cycle. Yeah, I'm thinking eel is another one where they use the- Yeah, yeah, the glass eels. That's so cool. The glass eels. Yeah, super cool. Arapaima was a really- neat fish that we also covered from South America. You can see them in some aquariums across the U.S. And um, the case study offers like a great case of local management and the importance of local ownership and conservation with this episode in particular. Besides that, the most surprising thing we learned about was their milk as well. So let's just play a clip from that episode too. What are all those grooves? It's almost like you're looking at like a topographic map of Mars or something. It's just got all these canyons and scratches. What are those? Yeah, I mean, the skull is super intricate. And one of the discoveries that happened recently is that if you look at the top of a skull, they have these depressions and there are holes in those depressions. And the first time that I was working closely with indigenous communities, I remember one of the indigenous leaders saying, milk comes from those depressions and the young feet on that. And I thought, you're blowing my mind right now. Still want to know more about what the chemical (laughs) composition of that is. And how it's produced. We talked about things in the bony tongue family with the hyodons, the moon eyes and the gold eyes. But are there other, is is that unique to the arapaimas? Or is that something that's Mm -hmm. going on in that whole genus or family or even order? I assume it's not that far out. But what other fish might be using something like that? Because that's the only thing similar that I I can think of. Or that's the only thing of its kind that I can think of. Yeah. If anybody knows, reach out to us. I thought the fish was really cool. And then just their behavior really lends themselves to being caught there at the surface. They're breathing air and just that kind of local buy into management and local conservation. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. No, I, I love that one. It's one of those fish where it lends itself very well to being able to be shifted over to local management because it doesn't move yep. around a ton. We talk about lots of yep. fish that have huge migrations which is also cool, but it makes it hard to manage when you have uh, yep. a, a species where you might be able to conserve it one part of the year and then it goes. And if it's not conserved throughout, it's, it's crossing boundaries in, and individual yeah. ranges. Yep. I, I think I made a mistake in that episode. I, I mentioned Dove in Iowa and how they don't have a hunting season for them. And then they fly south and get hunted. Apparently, Iowa did get a, a hunting season for Dove in 2011. So uh, oh. or Adam. Corrected now. Corrected now. You go. Sorry, Iowa state agency. <laughs> the biggest take-homes from this next episode to me was really the importance of local indigenous representation in fisheries. So let's play this clip from our Pacific Herring episode. What I really wish for the, the next generations is one that the knowledge that we hold today 
when it comes to harvesting and taking care of these herring. I hope that's passed down and that the next generation operates with confidence when it comes to that. But I also hope that those people in the next generation are at the table when it comes to management and decision-making with the herring and with the herring eggs. And of course, I hope that the population is flourishing and thriving and that there is not a concern that we have today that they're going to be gone. Because if the herring go, then kind of everything starts to fall apart. Yeah, I I enjoyed that one. She, she told a story when she was on there about them. So, so it is an interesting kind of life cycle for these herrings where they go and they attach their eggs to substrate on, on the coast there on rocks and kelp and artifact or some other structures that are introduced. And th- th- there was this hearing where people talked about how important these eggs are to them and these fish are to them. And normally th- th- there's a lot, lot of discussion these days about the importance of getting local indigenous knowledge into the fisheries management process. She provided a great example of you know, fisheries managers not having the knowledge about how these fish were reproducing and how her people were able to uh, contribute that. Yeah. And that was, yeah, Marina Anderson, and she had a really great childhood story and it's worth a listen. Just a really great episode overall. Our Yukon River Chinook episode really captured the loss of what happens when fisheries close. And this one hit hard and it's something we're all going to need to be working on in the coming years to turn around. So let's play a clip from that one. So my name is Mackenzie Englishu. I'm 20 years old. I'm Gwetcha Gwetchin. My community is Gwetcha Jay, located on the Porcupine and Yukon River in interior Alaska in the Yukon Flats. And then we got one more clip from her as well. Actually, I'm the last one in my family to be able to cut fish. A lot of what she said was really poignant. And her mom actually was sitting in the same room and we were able to chat with her as well and bring in some of that longer term connection that's actually being lost with some of the younger generation. So I thought this was a really great episode and also quite sad. Similarly, the Kiwi and Lahat and Cutthroat Trout, different reasons for a decline, but huge impact on the Northern Paiute people. Autumn Harry, who's the first Indigenous woman fishing guide in Kuiwi Pa'a or Pyramid Lake, she was pretty amazing to talk to as well. So let's hear from her. Everyone, my name is Autumn Harry. The kiwi are such an important fish to our people. We refer to ourselves as kiwi tikata, which means the kiwi eaters, but we're also known as numa, which means northern Paiute. And so here at Pyramid Lake, at Kuiwi Pa, this is numa territory, specifically the band of kiwi tikata, the kiwi eaters. And yeah, I think it's really important for people to understand, you know, the land, the water, and that history before people travel here. We refer to the Lahat and Cutthroat Trout as a guy in our language. I like having her on. So technically, that was for the Lahat and Cutthroat episode, but having her expertise to talk about uh, the Kiwi on the, on there as well. That was kind of a back-to-back episode we did on uh, some Pyramid Lake fishes. But no, I, I really enjoyed that one. And I think it's really interesting how the entirety of Pyramid Lake falls within the Northern Paiute Reserve or the Pyramid Lake Paiute Reservation. And how I, I like how she's just taken the reins in terms of trying to educate people about the history yeah. of this landscape, the history of these fish and her people. Yeah, she's participating in that fishery. And I think that really struck me as well, that just kind of education. And if you're going to go to a place 
and go fishing, you should really know that place and the people. It also really just struck me how she gave thanks to the fish she catches. And I think we could all do a little bit more of that. That's a cool conservation story. Going from being extirpated to finding the strain of fish from that lake and reintroducing it and having them now exceeding 40 pounds. It's it's a really good story. Freaking huge. Yeah. Big old cool cuts. Fish. Yeah. What was neat after we covered a lot of these indigenous stories about fisheries, we covered a very different fishery for tarpon. It's a fly fishing catch and release fishery. Pretty stark contrast, but our guest, who was author Monty Burke, he offered some things to think about as a fly fisherman in terms of respecting fish as well. So we're seeing this theme throughout. That, that, that was a good episode. <laughs> I heard good feedback from some people who who do fish for tarpon. They, they liked it. There's so much more we could have gone into with that, but I felt like... That was a great history of sort of the fishery around Florida, where in the U.S. that's sort of the mecca for tarpon. So I, I think Monty did a great job. I was really surprised to learn that Michelangelo had painted that fish in the Sistine Chapel. It turns out it's a, a tarpon. So yep. that was that was news to me. Yep. And then there was the noodling flathead episode. Guy got to go try that out. And yeah, I, I think that was a, a, another very interesting fishery, kind of a different technique that we covered. So let's play a clip from that one. Yeah, so... We're doing a little noodling earlier in the week. I don't know if y'all can see my hand, but um, oh. <laughs> after one oh. without a one. But yeah, so it's not e- teeth in the traditional sense, right? But they do have some pretty aggressive like tooth patches. Like think about, you know, maybe pretty grit sandpaper or something like that. Austin uh, just held up his hand and he's got a big yeah. like scab all the way around. Scab around mm-hmm. it. That's crazy. <laughs> I'd probably recommend wearing gloves if you're going to noodle. <laughs> Unless you really want the burn. <laughs> it was really cool getting to see those guys and go out there and meet them in person as well as the rest of the people on the crew people who get to go out and work in the field with fish always have great stories so getting to see where he caught that fish and the pictures of it and pulling it out that was a, just a really great time and i, I think that's personally one of my high, highlights of the year was getting to go out and work with those yeah. guys studying those flathead and those blue catfish So we've got our correspondent, Maria Dosal, here with us. Yeah, and we're, we've been really happy she's been able to start joining us for some episodes. What is Minute with Maria? What's the goal there? Along everybody, Minute with Maria is a segment that we have on the Fish of the Week podcast where I come in and give you my two cents of my indigenous knowledge on fish. So I kind of speak to my cultural heritage and pay respect to some land acknowledgement, depending on where we're at. Not only is it a joy to listen to Fish of the Week podcast, it's such a blessing to be heard um, as one of the many Indigenous voices that we have here What's on this podcast. What's that introduction that you do? What does that translate to? I've had some people reach out to me and, and ask. Anang, it means hello, everybody, in Unangak. Unangam Tunu is my language in Unangak. All right, cool. Thank you. Beautiful, beautiful language. Thank you. So Maria did something fun for us. She went through our social media and, you know, we get a lot of comments and some really cool just kind of chit chat going on those channels. So Maria, we were hoping you could share some highlights or just some reactions folks had that might be fun to hear about or just anything at all. With the holidays just ending, I hope you all had to go and get a good visit in with your grandparents. And speaking of grandparents, we have this lovely Mm -hmm. wolf eel. On the podcast episode, we got to talk with Diver Max from British Columbia. Scuba Max. Yeah, Scuba Max. And she got to visit the actual 
famous wolf eel named grandpa. So it's kind of funny that we have all these comments about grandpa and got to pay credence to the comment that says this literally looks like Mitch McConnell. I mean, it kind of (laughs) does. If I had to choose a fish that the (laughs) most look like Mitch McConnell, not just Mitch McConnell, but a lot of our kind of octogenarian representatives, uh, I'd probably be the wolf eel. (laughs) <laughs> I remember one of the comments on the Wolfield. They had photoshopped the Wolfield into Mount Rushmore. It was amazing. Whoever did that, great job. They kind of got the texture yeah. to it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. It fits just perfect. Moving on. I'm not sure if this is a running joke on some of these fish comments, but a lot of people are asking for skincare routines. And since it's a new year, there could be a new you sharing some skincare routines and, uh, you know, getting that going in your daily routine. If you want to know what mine is when I'm staining, um, I go for a full dose of seawater, long, painful face mask of jellyfish. And then I apply <laughs> sardines to my under eye for uh, some rejuvenation, you know, in my dark circles. Then I go and obviously we're going to be fishing for some chum salmon. So that dogfish slime for some toner and then give it a good scrub with your blue Atlas gloves for the ultimate skincare routine, just in case anyone's wondering how I get this good glow. All right. Um, (laughs) You have the fart Um, one, Maria? Drum roll, please. We got the FRTs. Fast, repetitive ticks. Yeah. Yeah. And for anyone that doesn't know, this is what herring release from their anuses when they're scared or during ascent or descent. And I can attest to this. I've heard some FRTs in my time staining. When you're on the sonar, you can hear them in the water when you're coming up on them. And it's unlike anything you ever heard before. It does kind of sound like a big old fart in the water, if you're asking me some of the comments on them. We got people to stay on X because of this one. Amazing. And for this one, like the herring episode, as we talked about with Marina Anderson, it was a very meaningful episode talking about a fishery and the importance to indigenous people. And we were trying to find a way on social media to kind of hook folks. And the farts are clearly a great way to, you know, they're very relevant to most people. Most people do that. So we try to find ways to make fish relevant and then you can dig deeper and listen to the podcast. Unfortunately, given the context of the episode, that wasn't something that we really got to talk about, like why and some of the cool historic things about how that was found. And there was almost a war between Sweden and the Soviet Union because they thought that those were Soviet submarines that they were picking up. And so it was was a whole thing. And I wish we could have gone into it. But like I said, it didn't really match the tone of the show to be talking about indigenous knowledge and like, hey, you know, Herring's fart. Hey, farts. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my gosh. We did get a comment from the public that apparently said that Xander are exclusively in Europe, and that is not actually the case. There were some Xander stocked in North Dakota back in the 80s, and there is a self-sustaining population in Spiritwood Lake. So that's actually now a new species that I have to add to my list and make my way up to North Dakota. That's one of the few states, I think one of four states that I haven't been to yet. So now I got a reason to go up there. I have to know one of my friends, he said that he generates some of his captions with chat GPT. I'm like, no, no, no. Katrina and Guy definitely do not generate captions with that because they're too brilliant. And I just have to know, do you ever do this or is it just coming straight from your mind? It's all straight from the mind. I don't know about like (laughs) captions or how Katrina does that, but I usually don't even come in with questions. It all works out good. Yeah. It's so great. I've been fangirling since season one, and I'm going to keep on oh, keeping on. It. Fangroupering. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. 
In terms of what's on deck for season four, what are you two most excited for? Let's look forward a little bit and see what we got coming up. We have to do a Cypronella. It's gotten, we're three plus seasons in. We haven't done a Cypronella yet. So the obvious choice with that one, maybe we'll do Alabama Shiner, though I've read some literature that suggests that maybe that's not really actually a Cypronella. It would open up the conversation there, but maybe Fiery Black in that case. So Cypronella is one. It's a big genus of minnows that we just haven't done yet. Very cool. Very large tubercles. Big sail-like dorsal fin on the males. Very, very nice. We have to do that one. we got Linda Greenlaw to do a, a swordfish episode for us. That, that's going to be next week's episode. I uh, really enjoyed that conversation. I think Maria and I are both looking forward to Last River Sucker, probably. Totally, yeah. We've been doing a lot of uh, research and connections with the tribes on that one. And so, yeah, there's a lot going into this one for Lost River Sucker, also known as the Chwam from the Klamath tribes. We mentioned Linda Greenlaw. I'm super excited to hear from her because I spent a lot of time with her in the Bering Sea and, you know, she transplanted over from the East Coast and she fished everywhere, but coming over to the Bering Sea to try her hand at the crab fishery over there with me was such a joy. I really loved working with her and learning about swordfish is going to be awesome. Yep. She also, I mean, she's just got so much experience. She has some really neat insights about like leadership and motivation and just some things that go beyond the fish itself. So that one's really something to look forward to. I'm looking forward to bloater personally, maybe some parrot fish. We would love to get the rock on to talk about largemouth bass. I don't think we'll ever necessarily do that, but if he's listening. We want to have you on. <laughs> if you're listening, the rock, we're here. We're ready to talk to you. Let's hear it. We know you got a pond down there and we want to hear all about it. Okay, we'll get on it. We're trying, we're trying. Tons of salmonids, overrepresenting the salmonids as always. But I do want to talk with some people about golden trout down in Mexico. I think that that would be really interesting. There's some cool work being done with genetics down there, separating out some different species that we've got. Northern pike minnow. We've been trying to do that one for a couple seasons. That yeah. one's a, another really kind of complex one. And I'm really looking forward to digging into that one. In terms of fish of the year or group of fish of the year what fish stood out the most to both of you i i vote for the opa okay why i think it even though it was an early year fish i think that episode stood out the most for me it's the most what, what's the best way to describe this let, let, let me think on that one saying common carp i i would have a tough time making common carp the fish of the year giving it that honor <laughs> it is very cool but it, it's not a North American native, so I feel like we have to restrict it in, in that respect. That may have been my favorite episode, Opa. but Opa, yeah, I'm going to go with the, the Opa. Maria, how about you? Opa Gangnam Style. Uh, yeah, so for me, okay, Amanda Pollock, she talked about humphead rats. Yep. Definitely, this one stuck with me for a long time after I listened to it with um, just hearing from Amanda Pollock and her time down there. I really wanted to have her job. I, I wanted to go down there and do what she did and learn about those fish and observe them and study them. That one really just really stuck with me. And not only that, but anyone that had indigenous guests, especially like Autumn Harry and Marina Anderson, those ones really stuck with me because I learned a lot, you know. I learned a lot for, from land acknowledgments and just ecosystem issues and drought and there's so much more to fish than we realize i would nominate i think the colorado native fishes they're so freaking cool 
One's got a razor on its back. One's got a hump. One's got a pencil peduncle. One's just like potentially huge. That Colorado pike minnow, they can get absolutely huge in their minnow. So I, I just, I think that class of fish is so neat and that place is really unique and beautiful. So I would nominate that group. If you're listening out there, tell us what you think and which fish of the year you would nominate. I don't know if we can come to a decision. I know I mean, last those, year we picked the blue sucker. Yeah, that was unanimous. <laughs> so we're we're pretty far flung in our responses there. Maybe this is just a tribute to fishing itself. You know, everyone has their different interests and what strikes them as individuals. There's so much to care about with fish and what all strikes us and tickles our fancy is maybe not for everybody, but everyone should care about them regardless. There's a fish out there for everybody. Yeah. If you'd like to tell us which fish you're interested in learning about or curious about or which has been your favorite so far, you can find us on fws.gov. Mine is just my first name, underscore last name at fws.gov. So yeah, please talk to us. We'd, We'd love to hear from you. Okay, so I really enjoyed last year we had, um, we covered walleye. Let's play a clip. I think it's relevant kind of year to year and it's it's really fun. So let's play this last clip. I've been for some reason picturing you guy riding the Port Clinton walleye as it drops on New Year's <laughs> Eve and doing like a live show from the fish where I ask you questions. So I was hoping you could humor me and pretend that you're coming to us from Ohio and how you'd introduce this fish. Huh, okay. All right. Let me think about that. That's quite a proposition there. Let's see. All right, so I'd be up there. I'd be straddling the fish. I'd be in between the first and the second dorsal fins. I'd be holding on to that spine. And I'd be holding on for dear life as they lower me into the approach of midnight, kind of like Kong and Dr. Strangelove riding the bomb down. And I'd say something like, I'd be like, ladies and gentlemen, it's an honor. It's a privilege to be here with you tonight. Get out there and enjoy all the fish, big and small, common and rare, beautiful and downright strange. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.